We're going to start with Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. Colossians 1, 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Now, that we have dealt with Christ's eternal existence and his key role in creation, Paul now makes it very clear to us that Christ is supreme to the church. Christ is now the head of the body, the church, so now Christ rules the church. There's one head, there's one body, one Christ, one church of Christ. Let's be loyal to his church and not to some human-made churches. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to his coming as one who would occupy the throne of David and reign as a king. The Synoptic Gospels looked on Christ as the one who came to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. Christ was a virgin, was virgin born in human flesh to be king of the Jews. The Jewish religious leaders having rejected him as their king. Now, God in grace established the church, the body of Christ, over which he made Jesus Christ the sole head. Now, the apostles' main assignment was to make known the nature of God's program and purpose called the church. The thing that I personally had overlooked at this time was that the false teachers were doing to go, were going to go against the truth of the new message that Paul was giving the Colossian believers. Paul was pointing out to the Colossian believers exactly who Jesus Christ was, what Jesus Christ had done for them, and he informed them that they are complete in him, that Jesus Christ was the head over the body, the church. Now, the answer every time to false doctrine is true biblical knowledge of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In our verse here, Colossians 1.18, that we're looking at this evening, Paul again tells us that Christ is the beginning. And since Christ was in the beginning, at the very first, Paul goes ahead and defines or describes and names Christ the beginning. If we go back to the furthest point in time, to a time known only by God, the Spirit, and God the Son was both there according to the Spirit. Because Christ Jesus tells us, and uh, if you look up uh, John 1, 1 through 2. John 1, 1 through 2. Resurrection. Uh, Chip, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 14. It says, For if we believe that Christ, that Jesus died and rose again, 
even so them also which slept in Jesus will bring, will God bring with him. Just as certain as he was raised, likewise our resurrection will follow. When you're looking over the facts here related to Jesus Christ, we notice the following truths, T-R-U-T-H-S. Christ is the image of the invisible God. He has eternally existed. He was here before anything else. All things in the universe were created by him. Number four, Christ is the end, the object, and the purpose of creation. Christ continues to be holded all together. And you want to think about holding it all together, I always like to think about the planets that are rotating here out in our system, that they don't run into each other. You talk about holding things into place. He is the exclusive head over the church. He is named the beginning. And he is also the originator of a new race of resurrected beings. Paul, after having told the Colossians who Jesus Christ was, and that all things had been created by him, then Paul goes on to explain why God the Father allotted to him, God the Son, such as a such a major role. The purpose is clearly in the Greek, which is almost literally translated in the, at the last part of our verse here in Colossians 18 that we're looking at. It tells us in the last part of this verse, it says that in all things he might have the preeminence, which is literally translated in order that Christ himself might be the first in all things. The obvious meaning here is that before the Colossians could or would give Jesus Christ first place in their lives, but they had to know, first of all, who Christ was, what Christ had even done, and true last and true a true lasting commitment and devotion to Jesus must be based on a thorough knowledge of his person. Who is who? Really, who he really is. The authority that has been assigned to him. What he's accomplished. We must attempt to learn all we can about Christ through predictions that were given in the Old Testament through his incarnate life. His death and his resurrection that is presented in the Gospels, and also through carefully studying and researching or searching out the New Testament epistle. Over and over again, Paul pleads with us, believers, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant. And the, the word Paul uses, that's used uh, 16 times, Paul uses that particular word ignorant. Or in other words, without that means without knowledge. Paul knew what was going on. Because keep in mind that Paul was an apostle in two different dispensations. Paul's first apostleship was with mysteries. Paul's second apostleship was with the mystery. His first apostleship was about the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But after Paul received his second apostleship, 
We do not know how much time, if any, he needed to get ready for preaching his new truth. Probably not very long, because Paul was inspired from above. No one else was inspired to give this message. The apostles and prophets of Ephesians 4.11 had to get it from Paul. They were not inspired. Today's Christendom, in general, does not know about nor even understands the dispensation of the mystery. It is written in the book, but hidden unless the Holy Spirit teaches it. In Colossians 1.18, he is, it reads that he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that are in things he might have from the preeminence. Paul's main purpose in communicating knowledge about Jesus Christ is the is to the Colossians was that they might make Christ the preeminence, or in other words, the first one in their lives. Preeminence, or the first one, who also gives us the idea of both first in time and first in preeminence. Since Paul has already pointed out that Christ is first in the sense of time, and has laid as a basis the emphasis here is that Jesus Christ is first in rank. He is also the preeminent one or the supreme one. The emphasis here is on the person of Jesus Christ and the position you and I are to give to Jesus Christ in our lives in relation to other things and persons. Remember this, that the false teachers at Colossae we're trying to get the Colossians to put other things first in their life. Example, philosophy, uh, human traditions, circumcision, and also things about worshiping angels. It is also probably the Colossians were putting pressure on their people to put other leaders ahead of Christ, such as Moses, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, remember that the Colossians had been, now this is hard for me to even imagine, but it, the Colossians had been 1,400 years under the Mosaic Laws, as Paul writes here in Colossians 1.18. He's instructing us believers in the body of Christ, the church, to make Christ the first one above everything and everyone else, regardless of the dispensation setting that is involved, whether it is the church or it's the kingdom, Jesus demands to be first the supreme and preeminent one in our lives. Colossians 1.19, let's go to that chip if you will please. For it pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell. When you really look at Colossians 1.19, there's a brief summary of the reasons why Jesus Christ is worthy to be the first in the lives of us believers. The Greek conjunction translated for, F-O-R, literally has the same idea as the word because. 
in this situation because all the fullness dwells in Christ. Therefore, Christ was to be the first one. All that Paul has said about who Christ is and what Christ has really accomplished is summed up in the statement, all the fullness. All the fullness. And is basic to God the Father's purpose that Christ should be the first and supreme one in our lives. The Greek word translated please, P-L-E-A-S-E-D, means that God the Father thought it would be good or was delighted that the Trinity should fully occupy the person of Jesus Christ, which in turn is the basis for our being the first one. Now, Let's turn our attention to the most significant phrase in this verse, all the fullness. The key word in this phrase is the word fullness, which has a general meaning of that which is fills up, or another one is is complete. The more important question is whether or not Paul uses this word fullness with a specific proper meaning. Paul speaks of the church of the fullness of God, the Father. In Ephesians 1, 23, Ephesians 1, 23, it tells, which is the body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. It strikes us that the word fullness may be used as a common denominator in all these passages mentioned, and as such suggests a Let's put it this way. A mysterious close bond between God the Father, the Holy Spirit, Christ, the church, and the believer as part of the church. You and I as believers are the fullness of God, which involves the fullness of Christ, which involves the fullness of the Godhead, an intimate relationship that exceeds the wildest imagination. In the light of this highly privileged relationship with Christ and God, the least that you and I can do in this Satan-dominated world, which hates Jesus Christ, is to make Christ the first, the supreme, and preeminent one in our daily living. Jeff, let's go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 of Colossians. Colossians 1.20 says, And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say whether they be things on earth or things in the heaven. <clears throat> the Greek word number 604 that is translated into the English word reconcile means to transfer from one given state to another to reinstate a position or harmony. The prefix that starts that word out has perfect, perfective significance. It could well give the idea to reconcile thoroughly, completely, or perfectly. Sin produced a barrier of enmity between God and all that had been created through Christ. The cross, the place where Jesus But the first
first thing that had to take place was the substitutionary death of Christ, which removed our sin and its enmity and resulted in peace. And it was well-pleasing to reconcile all the alienated things in our universe to God himself through him. That is, through Christ, and Christ does the work of reconciliation as a result of his having made peace between God and man through the blood of his sacrifice on the cross. This reconciliation is made through him between God and all beings, whether they be the things on the earth or the things in the earth, heavens. Christ shed blood on Calvary's cross was sufficient to reconcile all things in the universe, both on earth and in the heavens. The extent to which the universe was cursed by Adam's sin was not fully revealed, but in due time it will be reconciled. Let's go to Colossians 1, verse 21. Colossians 1.21, it says, And you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, now hath he reconciled. Just for a brief moment here, Paul turns the clocks back a few months or years and reminds the Colossians that they once were but now the Colossians are a new creations in Christ. According to 2 Corinthians 5.17 where it says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now there's two points I want to make here to be made. The first point is that the Colossians were a people who once were alienated and an enemy in the mind. The word alienated meant that at a given point in time, in the past, the Colossians had them alienated, that they were a stranger, an alien, or a foreigner, away from or who was totally separated from God. Because God's good pleasure had decided that the alienated things in all the universe should be reconciled to God through Christ. There is no other means for this reconciliation. You and I don't know what or who these things are that are in the heavens which need to be reconciled to God. As it tells us, uh, Chip, uh, Philippians 2.10, Philippians 2.10, Philippians 2.10 reads that at the name of Jesus, but at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in the earth, and things under the earth. Now, when you think about that, that covers all three locations, the heavens, the earth, the lower parts of the earth area. Every knee will bow before him. All humans will be confronted with the fact that Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, is Lord. Philippians 2.10 that we just read is very 
clear that all humans, regardless of their spiritual status, will utterly, ultimately face Jesus Christ and recognize that the Father has made Christ Jesus Lord. The Greek word here, every, literally means that every knee, all knees that are still here earth, will drop to the ground in their confrontation with the Lord Jesus Christ. Even, even those chosen in Christ before the world was created in Ephesians 1.4 and the elect in 2 Timothy 2.10 will gladly fall before Christ and adore his majestic person. These, those individuals who have shown to them, power and deed are now without excuse. Even those individuals who have refused to glorify Christ as God will be forced to bow their knees before him and to recognize and to acknowledge that Christ Jesus is the Lord of the universe. This will be confirmed evidence of the fact that they are without excuse in their rejection of God and doomed to eternal judgment. Now, the second point that I want to make here is they were a people who were enemies, a people who lived in a state of hatred, bitterness, and opposition toward God. Uh, Chip, if you would turn, if you would please, to Ephesians chapter 4. 17 through 22. 17 through 22. I'm going to skip verses 19 and 20 and 21. But Ephesians 4.17 says that, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk, not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of your mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And I want to jump down to verse 22. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. Now these two words, alienated and enemies, accurately describe the state of every descendant of Adam in this world. The rest of this verse adds up a new word that adds some special thought to the verse. Now, let's move on in our verse, Colossians 1.21. Paul says that the Colossians were a people who once were alienated, and they were an enemy in the mind, in the Greek word translated the mind, also thought of as when the brain is in action. Keep in mind that the word, the Greek word for mind is 1271, is defined as mindset, intellect, uh, we could also call it understanding, uh, thinking, or mode of thinking and thought. One thing is definitely clear, and that is the seat of the spiritual problem was in their mind or in their mindset. With respect to their minds, they were alienated and were totally separated from God. 
God had absolutely no place in their lives. They were completely cut off from God. According to the Bible, two things are necessary if this problem is going to be corrected. The two things are equally important. They are mutually dependent on one another and is effective without the other. It's important that they both are working at the same time. Now, these two things are, the first is the Spirit of God must begin working on the mind of the natural man, which will enable him to see himself as he really is, making him dissatisfied with his current state and establishing him an interest in the Word of God and ultimately drawing him to the Savior, Jesus Christ. The second thing is the truth of the God, God's grace must be impressed upon the mind of the natural man, which involves the fact that all men are sinners, that Christ died for all of our sin, and that through the exercise of divine faith, we are identified with Christ as our Savior. It contains knowledge of how we are to live as members of the body of Christ. Apparently, what is God's good pleasure is that all things will be reconciled. Probably there will be many individuals who will simply not cooperate with God. But God has never forced, remember this, God has never forced anyone to accept his blessings. Although, we cannot escape the consequences of refusing to accept the blessings. If the sacrifice of God's own Son cannot bring your heart to love God, probably nothing can. God has made peace between man and himself through the blood of Christ's cross. Even as the Spirit of God used the Word of God, the gospel of grace is to lead many of the Colossians to faith in Jesus Christ. Even today, this, God, this is God's method. Our battle today is for the minds of men. Our weapon for today is an accurate presentation of the gospel of God's grace. When the Colossians were aliens and enemies with respect to their minds, this showed itself through living in the sphere of evil works. What the mind is determines what he will, it will produce. A mind that is totally separated from God, that hates him, cannot possibly produce anything else other than evil works. Once you and I have been reconciled to God by the message of God's death, then it is God's goal to present us holy and without blemish and to be blameless before Him. There should be a constant process of growth and self-purification and service following our conversion until our death or until the Lord's return. Let us labor and continue to rightly divide We've talked about that a lot. God's words so that we may be ready for that day, so that we may be presented holy, without blemish, and blameless, or unreprovable, which means that we cannot be called to account for. Uh, Chip, let's go to Colossians 1, verse 22. Colossians 1, 22. 
3, as it says, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. Do you recall uh, what it said back in Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him? I say, whether they be things on the earth or things in heaven. We saw that God the Father reconciled all things. No. I saw whether it be things in the earth or things in heaven. What we saw, God the Father reconciled all things into himself through Jesus Christ. The main things which were upon the earth and in the heavens. Emphasis in this particular verse is on the reconciliation of the Colossian saints, which is an example of how God reconciles everyone who is an alien or an enemy in his mindset. We have the same basic verb used here in Colossians 1.22 as was used in Colossians 1.20 for the word reconcile. The fact that God was perfectly and completely completely reconciled these Colossian saints unto him, which means three things. Number one, you were personally reconciled. It was an instantaneous and once and for all transaction. And number three, most important, was the work of God on their behalf. Since God is the one who does the reconciling of sinful man unto himself, it has to be a perfect act. It was to be a complete reconciliation, which was for eternity. In Colossians 1.20, we observe that the reconciliation of all things is based on the blood of the cross. Also here, the reconciliation of men is based on the body of his place through death. The basis is the sacrifice of the physical body of Jesus Christ in death upon Calvary. Paul says that we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Chip, would you go to... Tony. Oh, Tony's back. Good work, Tony. Good to see you. Uh, Chip is doing real well covering for you. Uh, Ephesians 2... 14 through 19, and we're going to look at verses 14, 16, and 18. <laughs> yes, good to be seen, yeah. Ephesians 2, 14 through 19. 14 reads, For he is our peace, for who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle of partition between us, having abolished in his place the enmity, even the law, of the commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself a twain, one new man, so making peace. Verse 16, which we're going to come back to. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you, which were afar off unto them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and all the household of God. Now, I want to speak about uh, 
Ephesians 2.16, that we just read, it says that he might reconcile both unto God in one body, the cross, having slain the enmity, thereby himself. The word reconcile here basically means to change down from or to change or to transfer from one state to another or to alter from one status of an enemy to harmony. And Ephesians 2.16 makes it clear that Jesus Christ is the subject of this verb reconcile. Christ is the one doing the reconciling. This same word reconciled is also used in Colossians 1.20 of our verse. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him, I say whether they be things on earth or things in heaven. When we see God the Father reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ, these two passages both agree that God the Father and God the Son are the ones who are the effectors of our reconciliation. Ephesians 2.16 must also look at the word both. Interesting here what I'm going to say. In this verse, the word both is, now listen to me, always used in the plural in the New Testament. Paul uses the word both three times here in Second Timothy. Or I mean Ephesians chapter 2. <laughs> verse 14 that I just read, Paul says that Christ has made the both one both is referring to the Jew and the Gentile. Verse 16, Paul says he might reconcile both the Jew and the Gentile. And in verse 18, Paul affirms that we both, referring to the Jew and the Gentile again, have access to the Father. Paul says that God reconciled both the Jews and the Gentiles. Paul explains how in one body, since we have already observed that the phrase one new man is to be identified with the one body of Christ, and the emphasis is on oneness or unity or the togetherness is important in this body. We positively support that the reconciliation of Jews and the Gentiles takes place in the body of Christ, the church. This was accomplished through the cross, the cross was the agent through which reconciliation is acted. When I say the word cross to you, it speaks of a physical instrument of which the Roman Empire, the Roman government, put death, criminals to death. Paul consistently uses the word cross. It helps to describe and understand the death of Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1.20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, I say whether they be things on earth or things in the heaven. Christ's substitutionary death and with Christ's shed blood is the agent through which both Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God. And when someone recognizes that the reconciliation takes place, in the sphere of the body of Christ, through the agency of the cross, there is a logical flow of thought here. Paul says at the end of Colossians 2.16, having slain the enmity, thereby, 
Adding slanting enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles refers to the hatred, the animosity, and the hostility that existed between these two groups of people. The Greek word here for slan here describes to us what Christ did. He, he put it death. He killed it and destroyed it on the cross. The fact that Jews and Gentiles are created into one new man. The body of Christ where there is a perfect oneness is inseparable from the fact that they are made a new creations in Christ on the basis of Christ's substitutionary death. Sin still is a barrier which separates. The only way a just God can remove this sin and still be just is through the agency of a sin substitute. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has was made our substitute on the cross. In verse, in our verse here, Colossians 1.22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. This literally means to stand beside, to place beside, or to position before in the presence of God. Ultimately, listen, every believer will be presented. They will stand beside or take this position before the judgment of God. When Christ presents you and I to God the Father, we will have three characteristics based on our position in Him. Our first characteristic, we will be holy, separated into God from that which is common and unclean. The second characteristic, we will be blameless, which means that we will be without blemish, stain, or defect. Jesus Christ, as the Lamb of God, was offered upon Calvary void of any moral blemish, stain, or defect. Likewise, on the basis of his perfect sacrifice, we will be without blame or defect before the Father. The third characteristic and the last one is we will be irreproachable. We cannot be called in question. No one can bring any charges or accusations against us or arraign or indict us. Overseers are to be irreproachable. Their lives are to be such that no one can bring a charge against them. Since God has justified us on the basis of the cross, we cannot be accused. We will stand irreproachable before God the Father. I want to thank you for listening this evening. That is all. the next time we'll start with Colossians 1.23 and Tony and Chip, I thank you for posting this evening. And um, I'm going to close here with in the name of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. Amen.